Hey, good people. This is your NI Dom back with another reflection. And this is a personal journal for contemplative people looking to think, grow, and have impact in the world. So, hey, I'm starting with philosophy. I'm starting with the concept of philosophy. And I have four on the brain, four philosophical considerations. Maybe five, maybe six, but we'll see. Um, I don't know how those philosophies are going to interconnect in this reflection and where I will end up, but my starting point is philosophy. Okay. <laughs> um, before I get started into my disclaimers, um, I want to just say, a special shout out to the person who contacted me on my website. I don't want to give any more information because when people contact me privately, I want to maintain that as private. Now, if you contact me on a public platform like YouTube, then I think that's open game for me to dialogue with you. But I got an email from someone in the last week. I don't think it's been more than 10 days. And I just was able to read it yesterday. And it just warmed my heart. Um, yeah, and I just want to say thank you um, to the individual. I'm, I will be responding to you soon. But thank you for doing that. And you guys, whenever you can find time to connect with me, um, I appreciate it. You know, I'm talking out into an abyss, right? I imagine you. The listener, I'm imagining you listening, but when you be, when you take yourself out of my imagination and you become part of my sensory reality by sending me some kind of message, um, that's endearing to me. I don't ask for you to do it, um, a lot, but when you do, I want you to know it just, it solidifies the work that I'm doing with this project. And I have to tell people that I'm doing a personal journal out loud. I'm talking about my own journey, my own experiences. When I find that those experiences help you process your experiences, your reality, it's a win-win for me. As I do these reflections, because they genuinely help me. But I'm doing them out loud, hoping that they will help you or someone out there. So when you contact me, it just, it just solidifies it that this is the work that I'm doing here. It's real work. So I wanted to say thank you to that person. If you're new to this project, this is a personal journal where I process my inner and my outer worlds. I do so by using personality theory. The two, my, the two that I use the most are the Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram. Pushing those two systems together, I identify as an INTJ8. I also identify as being an African-American woman. <sighs> from a lower socioeconomic background and from intergenerational trauma, I'm a trained and practicing educator and social scientist and have been doing this work for about 30 years. Half of that time has been in leadership. I politically identify as a critical race feminist. I was telling someone yesterday that 
I added this disclaimer, and I've mentioned this before, but I think it's important to remind you all. I added the disclaimer about being a critical race feminist because it's important that you know that if you're interacting with another African-American woman who's an INTJ, an INTJ ain't, we can be substantially different. And that's important amongst the racial elite. I'm not in the the elite class. And so sometimes the racial elite will want to make a point about someone from a subgroup. Then they go and find a representative from that subgroup that's going to affirm their elitism. So someone out of there, someone in the minority group will challenge their identity or their sense of right, will give them an ego hit, a punch in the ego. And because they are the racial elite and they know it, then they go and talk to someone from the subgroup, minority group, all to make them whole again, all to affirm them. So I can say things in this project that will make people of the racial elite uncomfortable. They may go and get a black person, a black woman, to affirm them. And I really want you to know that unless that black woman is a, identifies as a critical race feminist, they don't even have to be from trauma and they don't have to be from a lower socioeconomic background. But in order to really Put that other black woman on par with me. They must be identified as a critical race feminist. That's most important. And if you can find a black woman who's a critical race feminist to make you whole after I've said something to make you feel incomplete, then that's okay. But only if that woman identifies as a critical race feminist, okay? But getting back to my disclaimers, (laughs) that was a rabbit hole. Um, politically identify as a critical race feminist. Um, and that's just important because I want you all to know that I have an intellectual sensitivity as it relates to power, particularly, uh, particularly around race, class, gender, sexuality, and all of the above and other stuff. This project is unedited and is unscripted. If you want to know more about it or me, feel free to go to my website at yournidom.wordpress.com. All right. Okay. So it's an early Thursday morning. It's about, it's 4 a.m., 4.01. And I've been up for three hours. I got up at one. So I don't want to be with you long because I'm going to take a quick nap <laughs> before I go to work. I'm going to just want to be able to take a 20 minute nap <laughs> before I go to work. So, but I just, I wanted to check in with you. Um, the last two episodes have been a little weird for me. Um, two episodes ago, I uh, talked about my father's sister passing, um, and that's heavy. And I think it's becoming more heavy now that I've had some distance from it. When I was up close, I had an initial grief, the initial crying, and then I went into like action mode and I had to then travel for my niece's graduation. I really haven't had an opportunity to sit with it. Well, now that I'm back home from travel, um, 
I'm looking at those two deaths. My dad died in September. His sister died in April. And, um, dang. And just those two together, those two deaths together, um, yeah, they're, it's starting to, um, they're starting to come together and have some significant, like an impact on me. And so I'm not ready to process that out loud because I'm still trying to, there's still some meaning making happening there, um, as a, as those, those two deaths together. So as that unfolds for me, I will be back to share that with you all. Um, I've also, the last episode I talked to you about just work struggle and, uh, I'm sighing because it's really ridiculous. Um, I really shouldn't be struggling here. I really shouldn't be because intellectually I get it. And I talked a lot about it in the last episode that it's a systems problem. I am from outside of the system now trying to work in the system, but I'm not of the system and I'm not looking to uphold the system. So therefore the system as it relates to systems theory is going to reject me. It's going to try to reject me. And I talked in the last episode about how you can change a system with a critical mass. But I don't have an interest to lead a movement for a particular system, to transform a system. I don't. I'd rather build a system than transform one. I genuinely would rather build one than than trying to transform one. And I'm not trying to do that right now either. I actually don't have a desire. I don't have the energy to build a system. I don't even know if energy is the word. I don't have the spiritual drive to build a system, even though I would rather build a system than to transform one. Intellectually, I know I would rather build a system rather than transform one. But in order to do that, I need to have the spiritual energy and conviction, and I don't have that. And this is why I want to talk about philosophy. I want to talk about a few different philosophies that could be influencing my lack of energy, my lack of spiritual, if you will, to go out and do the work, do whatever the work is. So I don't know. So, you know, in the last episode, I'm, I'm stuck here. This is a lesson. I'm stuck in a lesson, y'all. I'm stuck here. So I hope that this isn't annoying for you to hear me wrestle. I'm really, really, really wrestling in something. Um, I really am. And I hope you're here for it. Um, and if you're not, I hope you pray for me. To get over it and to get through this lesson soon, okay? I apologize, but I am really in a lesson. I'm stuck here right now. So a lot of you have received this that last episode, the lesson. I've gotten I've gotten more downloads on that than I do my regular episodes, and I don't know why. 
I don't think it's a good episode. I don't think it's a terrible one, but I'm like, yo, what is up with that episode? <laughs> so anyway, so I guess you can go check it out, but I'm not a fan of it. Um, and I think I'm not a fan of it because it feels like drama. I always tell you all that. I like talking philosophy. I like talking ideas and theories. But those are the uh, episodes that I don't get the most love on. But as soon as I stop dropping and give you some kind of S.E. story, some kind of reflection that's grounded in a uh, an event, you guys are here for that. <laughs> I don't like those. I don't like those reflections. I really don't. But okay. <laughs> So, anyway, uh, so let's talk a little philosophy. The first philosophy I want to mention is determinism. And I was um, listening to some content this morning, and that came up. And I've heard determinism before, but I'm like, that's another situation where I hear a word or a a concept. I've heard it before. I can, whatever content I'm taking in, I can understand the content without having to go look up that word to delve more into it. But this morning, when I heard determinism, I wanted to open it up a little bit. So I did a little Googling (laughs) And uh, spent found a nice article that talked about determinism and the opposite, which is called indeterminism. I'm going to call that chaos, though, okay? Determinism versus chaos. And determinism is a philosophy that says that every all of our existence is rooted in cause and effect. That there's nothing that we're experiencing today that is... N- not the outcome of something that happened already. Right? Everything today is the outcome of yesterday. It's the effect of yesterday. And there are people who don't like the concept. There are people who don't like the concept of determinism. Because they think it challenges or threatens the idea of free will. Because who we are today is the result of choices, our own choice. And we can choose to do, we can choose to be. Hold on. And where it gets a little complicated for me is in the idea of indeterminism or chaos. Okay, you guys, I'm sorry I put you on pause, so it's going to be a little break in my, um, in the flow of what I was saying, but I'm, I'm a little confused around, um, indeterminism or chaos. Because it's basically saying that life is just a rant, just a series of randomness. It's just, it's just randomness. It's not about cause and effect. It's about chaos. 
And um, that's intriguing to me because I listen to a podcast that is grounded in Carl Jung's work. And um, I guess Carl Jung, I don't want to, I don't, nope, nope, nope. I need to read this so I don't, don't. mm -mm, mm -mm. (laughs) But in this particular, there's an episode I listened to where they were talking about God is chaotic. A lot of times we try to create a God construct, God construct that's orderly, cause and effect. But God is 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 chaos. And every since I heard that, I listened to that like in August of last year. And every since I heard this idea that God can really just be chaotic. It's just, it's just something that has caught my attention. I'm not a hundred percent sure what I want to do with that yet, but it has, it is striking. It is, um, it's intriguing. It's intriguing enough for me to sit with it. Uh, I, I, it's not something that I've discarded intellectually, right? I'm not sure if I'm ready to embrace God as chaos, but I sure as heck cannot discard that. I can't discard it. And so what I'm thinking about this morning in terms of determinism is where does free will sit in that? As a human, I my life is about me making choices. And one of the arguments made that whether you think life is chaotic or if it's cause and effect, free will doesn't exist at all. Doesn't exist in chaos and it doesn't exist in determinism. Isn't that interesting? That if life is a series of chaos, random events, do we have the free will to respond to those events in the randomness of life? And or do we have the free will to respond to effects of life is caused by some earlier event. Either way, does free will exist? I guess it's the question. <laughs> I guess that's the question I'm going to take out of this part of philosophy determinism. I don't know. So that's all I had for that. Um, maybe I'll come back to that. We'll see. Another philosophy uh, that I was contending with this morning comes out of Plato's work. The Allegory of the Cave. And I love this story. I love the Allegory of the Cave. Um, and Plato was a student of Socrates. What I didn't know, or I don't remember because as a social scientist, I had to study these philosophers. I didn't realize that Socrates himself didn't do a lot of writings. That most of what we know about Socrates came from his student. Plato, and that's interesting. Well, anyway, so Plato wrote this. Um, okay, I want to say something else about Plato before I tell you about the cave that that I found interesting this morning as I was kind of doing some reading. That Plato was in, inspired by some other thought leaders until he witnessed the trial and the execution of Socrates. And that experience was transform, transformative for him. 
And I just think about that. I, let me say it differently. I identify with that significantly because I feel that I've gone through a transformation in my thinking that was so, so transformational. I'm almost like a different person. Yet I'm a different person still occupying the same credentials from pre-transformation. So before I went through this transformational season, I went and got licensed as an educator. And honestly, honestly, what I really think I'm battling is that those those credentials that I went and I've invested a lot of money in for a career, they're not transferring over into my new life, my new way of thinking since the transformational event. And I'm wrestling. That's the wrestle. That's really what I think is at the heart of it all. So anyway, getting back to Plato, he went through this transformational experience watching some kind of trial and execution of Socrates as a mentor. And it changed his thinking. And he, and this is another way I relate to him, that he moved into writing. That's where I'm at. That's where I want to be, y'all. I want to write out my thinking. I love writing. That's what I want to do. I like writing more than I do like speaking. But I also know that writing is labor intensive for me because I want to write and honor the rules of of English, if you will. And because, you know, technically English is my first language, but technically, I mean, but not standard English. Standard English is not my first language. Um, black English is my first language. Most people don't put black English in a positive light. They call it broken English, but it's really a, it's an, it's an, it's a language that has a set of rules. Black English is, is not unintelligent. It's a rules based language. So I was born into black English and then I had to learn standard English. And so most of the time I got it. (laughs) Most of the time you guys hear me. You guys hear me when I slip. (laughs) But anyway, um, So writing in standard English is labor intensive for me, but it's a labor of love. I enjoy it, but it's still labor. So sometimes when I want to message out and I don't feel like doing that labor, I can hop on a podcast and I can just ramble. I love it. I love that as well. But I like writing more than I like rambling, If you just so you guys know. (laughs) So anyway. But I say, I say that because that's really, really where I want to be. I want to be in a messaging part of my life. I want to write and speak out the perspectives that I have as an NI Dom. INTJ black woman, INTJ eight black woman from a lower socioeconomic background, from intergenerational trauma trained and practicing educator, social scientist critical race, feminist, all of that together, 
gives me a very, very unique perspective in the world. And I want to write and record it. That's what I really think that's where I want to be. And I want to teach in it. So I don't think, I don't think writing it would be enough if I can be honest. And I don't think talking, like going out doing presentations, I don't think that would be enough. I would, oh my God, I would love to take learners, if you will, through an uh, intellectual process for them to take my perspectives and make meaning of it for themselves. So I don't even want to deposit my thinking into someone else. I don't want to deposit my perspectives and say, here's what I think. No, I want you to think it. Not at all. I want to take my perspectives as a starting point, get it out in the world for people to go, oh, well, that's interesting. Oh, well, that's a ridiculous thought. Oh, I like that, right? Whatever you do with my perspectives, I'm okay with it. It's just that you're doing something with it. That my perspectives has movement. They, excuse me. My perspectives have movement. Plural, not singular has. See? You see that gram? You see that issue with grammar right there? My perspectives have movement. That's what I want. And I'd love to facilitate the movement process as a teacher and taking what I know about learning from, from from the science of learning, the science of teaching. Oh my God, that would be awesome. That's what I wanted. That's what I would love to do. And I think I have some ideas on how I can do it. I genuinely do. I just have to figure out how to have, you know, how to survive and, and I don't know how to monetize it. That's the question. I don't know how to monetize it. I don't know how to monetize it. And I don't know. I shouldn't say I don't know how to monetize it. I don't know how to monetize it at the level uh, for me to maintain my standard of living. There it is. And I don't have a huge standard of living. There it is. I don't know how to monetize it to maintain my standard of living. But I don't think it's impossible. And I don't think I can't learn it. I just have to spend. I have to figure it out. But if I'm so busy dealing with the drama of of the current job that I have to maintain. So I have a job that's going to maintain my current standard of living. And that job occupies me mentally so much that then there's no room to do to to strategize and build for the other stuff. Because one thing I know about being an NIDOM or being an INTJ, especially being an INTJ 8, I'm going to be problem solving my reality. I'm going to do that. Or, yeah, my current conditions. I'm going to have to make the sacrifice to park all that so I can use my INTJ 8 self and build something new. I know that. I know that. I just don't want to financially go through the process. 
That's what I just don't want to do. And you guys keep hearing me say it. And that's the lesson. But anyways, let me, let's get back to Plato because I don't want to perseverate here. <laughs> but, um, what was that saying? So anyway, Plato goes through this transformation and he then moves off into writing. One of his writings was the cave, the allegory of the cave. And, um, and I, I didn't reread it this morning. So I'm just going to try to give this to you on recall. Those of you who know the cave, I don't know. Here's what I would tell you to do. Go read it for yourself. Okay. It's a really good piece. Well, basically he theorizes that there's these people living in this cave and all they can see are shadows. They live in this cave twice a day. Somebody rolls a stone away. And so the light comes in. And so food is brought in. And when food and so they can see light. But they don't see the sun. I don't believe they can see the sun. And then the, the door is shut. And all they see are shadows on the wall. And they've built their whole existence. Excuse me. They don't, I'm not going to say they built their entire existence is located in the shadows. They only know shadows. That's all they know. That's reality for them. That's seriously reality. And then one day, one person is let free out of the cave. And he's brought into the outside. And he can see the sun. He can see birds, he just, he's life and it's a different reality. Now I'm going to challenge myself and challenge you all listening to me that when I first heard the, mm -mm, yes, when I first got introduced to the cave, I looked at as, I looked at this as in the cave was a false reality that felt real for the people inside the cave. But when that person got let out, they were able to be introduced to reality. And I've believed that up until I would say the last year or so. That just because the person that got out of the cave can now say there's more than, no, that in the cave wasn't real. Shadows were indicative of something else. Of something more real. And this is reality. And what I would argue today is that. We don't know that the person who's let out of the cave is now in reality. There could be another reality that we have an access. Um, and to kind of get close to that. Go listen to my episode. I think I called it transsensory. It's just me looking at life through a metaphysical lens. And I don't think I do a really good job at it. But that's where I start poking around it. What is reality? Is life real? Is death real? And all of that. Okay, blah, 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 whatever. <laughs> so, um, so forget the, the next layer of reality. And let's just say the cave gives us an opportunity to question what is real. But what's most important about the cave for me this morning? Forget the idea of uh, reality. Is when you have a moment that's transformational, when you're let out of the cave and you no longer see shadows, but you see real people, you can't go back in the cave and ex and <laughs> you just it doesn't work that way. You can't go back into the cave and go, "This is real." 
You can't. And so the person that was led out of the cave in Plato's allegory uh, of the cave, when he goes back in and he tries to tell the other people there, yo, there's a son, there's this, they laugh at him. He doesn't belong in that cave anymore. My goodness. Ooh, my goodness, y'all. You guys should know I'm having a moment. If you've been following me, you know I'm having a moment. <laughs> and hopefully, without me saying it, you can already guess what this moment is about, just connecting it up to this lesson I'm struggling in. I'm, I go back into the workspace so that I can take care of myself. But I'm back in a cave. I'm back in another, in a reality that I no longer embrace as real. I don't embrace the employment world. I shouldn't say that. Yeah, I'll say that. I don't embrace the employment world as real. I don't even embrace capitalism as real. It's real. It's Okay, I, I do embrace it as a real system in the social world. And as humans living in a social context, I also embrace that we have to have systems for safely interacting with each other. So I don't vilify capitalism um, because it's an artificial system. I mean... All systems are artificial. All systems are created so that we can live safely in a social world. I mean, capitalism is, um, capitalism is rooted in racism. Like, so if capitalism wasn't rooted in racism and sexism, I wouldn't really have a problem with capitalism. Like, because it's presented as though it's a meritocracy. Right, you put forth the effort to get the capital, and if you put in the effort to get the capital, it's fine. But then we would have to challenge: What do we mean by effort? And we're not putting in equal effort, so we don't. We're not dealing with equal outcomes. And it reminds me of a conversation where someone was like, everyone should have a right to compete. Like there were these certain jobs that were um, assigned in the organization I I worked in. And this lady was making an argument that she had to apply for the position and it was a real competition. And she wanted the respect. She didn't think that other people should be appointed in positions because she had to compete in the position for the position. And then my counter my counterpart in the room, he argued his argument was everybody didn't compete for the positions for next year. That they're saying that all people have to compete for those positions, but some people were appointed in positions. So one person in the in the room argued that all the positions are um were based on competitions and they should be respected. 
because then what it means is that I competed and I won. And there was an error, there's an error, uh, uh, error of superiority and, uh, um, from this person, this lady who was making this argument that I, I had to compete for it. And I got this position because I competed for it and I earned it. I earned it through the competition. That's uh, the idea of merit, right? You earn that. And then the other guy in the conversation, excuse me, there were four of us in this conversation. There's only one guy, three women. They were all white. I was the only black person. So that's important. <laughs> so the guy, the, uh, the, the guy in the room said, that's not true. All the positions aren't based on an open contest. They're not all based on merit. Some of them have been based on favor. He didn't use the word favor, but I'm going to say, what's the opposite of merit? When somebody grants it to you, appoints it, well, that's favor. I'm going to call that favor. And he's saying, I don't, I'm okay if the organization moves and does merit-based assignments, but then all assignments in the organization must be merit-based. You can't have some that are merit-based and some that are appointed. That was his argument. And my argument is different from those two. In an environment, and this goes back to this idea of capitalism, and I'm clearly in a rabbit hole, y'all. I'm clearly in a rabbit hole, but all right, let's just hang in there for a second. In an environment that is predominantly and historically white, predominantly and historically white, In a county that does not have the same level of whiteness. So how does this organization maintain its whiteness? How does it do that? You can't talk about meritocracy in that space. Because the competition is going to be rooted in the historical treatments of worth. Historically, what do we value? What does this organization value across time? You cannot tell me that an organization maintains its whiteness like that in a space, in a surrounding community of color without saying that that organization does not value Diverse backgrounds. And if the organization in its predominantly white space will now review candidates for value, how are they going to value if they don't, they don't show that they can value diversity? So that even if they do bring on a, uh, anyway, I'm going to another rabbit, forget it. Forget it. The point that I'm making is that I don't know if I think meritocracy is real in a in a country, in a, and it's not really just America, because people who live outside of the United States like to sometimes look at the racism in the United States and go, "We don't deal with that." No, colonialism happened was a global event. 
And what I'm learning, and I haven't done the research on this, so I don't know if this is true. But if I've heard this enough, now I need to look it up. Whites do not make up the global majority. They don't. I'm not. I'm gonna leave that alone because I don't. I I I don't want if you're white listening to <laughs> if you're white listening to me. I don't want you going hey. Right, because I don't, I don't, first of all, white isn't even a thing. Excuse me, white is not an ethnic group. It's a racial group. And it's a political, it's a political designation. So first of all, if you identify as white, that's problematic in my opinion. Because there's a, there's a political nature to what it means to be white. So I'm talking about white as a political designation. Nothing more. Not about you ethnic, not about an ethnic designation, but a, a political one. We'll have to get off of that. Anyway, so I am so far off topic right now. So I'm just trying to make this point that it's the starting point. Capitalism started off of the l- brutal, not just labor, free labor. Brutal free labor of Africans. Because even though blacks weren't the only slaves, because you start off with these indentured servants and they were able to work their way into freedom, right? Blacks were the, for 400 something years, were stuck in a system of brutal slavery. While United States was building its capital. Come on now. Don't talk to me about merit. Don't talk to me about it. Just, just, just don't do that. No. So anyway, so I would not have a problem with capitalism if we didn't have these other things to consider about how it originated. Like the idea of merit in and of itself is not a bad thing to me, but that's an illusion. Of the cave. For me, it's an illusion of the cave. And I'm no longer in that cave believing that. So anyway, I don't know. That's, that's, I don't even know where I was going with this, but trying to kind of come back to this um, philosophy. So coming back into the cave, um, you can't, I, I, going back into employment, oh, going back into this conversation, I think that's where I was at, that, People can be appointed. Some people have to be appointed. Because if you base it just off of merit, I don't, then that now means we have to take a look at what the organization values. And then you have to look at historically what the organization has valued. And I don't know, I don't know, I don't know if we've done that. I don't know. Anyway, so I'm I'm back in this place, and um, I've had a you know I've had a mind shift, I've had a spiritual shift. Um, I um, but yet I'm back there, 
And, um, and I'm using that as a form of survival. But I'm no longer, I'm the person that was let out of the cave and I got a chance to dance around in the sun and see the birds. And then I went back and then I, I don't understand why they're laughing at me. I don't understand why they don't understand me. Of course I understand it. What I said in the last reflection, what, which was odd, I'm really going to try to rank up in that system. Anyway. So that's the second philosophy that I'm thinking about this morning, like this idea of what is not just reality, but what happens when you have had that shift and you come back to other people who have not had that shift. And now you have to deal with the implications of, I got to live within the cause and effect of your reality. And we're not dealing with the cause and effect of my reality, which then takes us to the first philosophy around determinism. Is it is it really cause and effect? Is our reality cause and effect? Because if it is because we would have to say is it one reality? In order for us to say that reality is cause and effect, we then have to would zero in and say there's one reality. And I don't know if I can say that. Anyway, um, I said that there were four philosophies I was thinking about this morning. I can only think of one more uh, right now. Um, and this is the philosophy of bell hooks around black feminism. You know, she passed away and I talked about her a couple of times already. So when she passed away in December, um, all of these people, all these people just leaving. And then, and then there's a part of me like if you're Christian, I haven't really studied other religions, you guys. I haven't, so I don't know what other religions believe after you die. But I know Christians believe that there is an afterlife. That's heaven. Oh, I can't open that up right now. But I, of course, of course, with my aunt passing, I, um, I'd like to believe that there's an afterlife. I don't know. I can't open that up right now. But the, re <laughs> but reality, right? If this, if is, is this the only reality? Is it? Um. But anyway, so anyway, Bell Hooks talks about in this, um. What does it mean to be a black woman? And what happens when a black woman is not enlightened? That's powerful. When a black woman is not enlightened to the systems of the world, then she falls into the illusion of strength. And a lot of people don't understand. I've said this to you guys before. The strong black woman is a stereotype. It's an illusion and it's a stereotype because the black woman does not have the power to be strong. So I don't fully agree. So while we don't have the power over others, we do have a strength to not be succumbed 
to not be overpowered, to be consumed. And I, and I think that we can't ignore that kind of strength. I, I just don't want to, I don't think we can ignore that kind of strength. But her argument is, I still respect it all the same. We don't have capital in the world. We don't have social capital. And so, what are we doing? And I'm thinking about, in this job, all of my superiors that I've had to interact with. One black man and two white women. And they've bonded with each other as minorities. The black man being black, the two white women being women, female. So they've they've bonded together as minorities. But then as they've interacted with me as a black woman, as a double minority, it's been violent. It's been hostile. And I need to be fair because I didn't come into that space. They experienced me in a milder version of myself. They they experienced me probably as an INTJ five maybe, and when they put me in that assignment in February, they saw me as an INTJ eight, and they probably it scared them. I stayed they're afraid of me, and so they've been doing a number of things to keep me. In check. And I don't really care about any of it. Because all of that's an illusion, right? It's just it's an illusion that I'm I'm working inside of. You guys, I told I don't I told you I didn't know where this reflection was going to take me. It was still all philosophical, <laughs> philosophical considerations is probably what I'm going to name this reflection. Um. Oh, I know what the I know what the fourth philo- uh, philosophy that I was contending with this morning. First half of life, second half of life, and in that first half of life, we we are blissfully blinded. By the cave, we are blissful in thinking that the cave is real. And we function in that cave. And then we have some kind of transformational experience. Some kind of, there's a word, transcendence. I don't know, transcending experience. We get let out of the cave. And that's when we move into the second half of life. But through our those of us who have privilege to take some of those structures with us from the first half of life, to live with them, to live on them in the second half of life. It's not something that all people have. So the question is, if you don't have structures to take with you from the first half of life into the second half of life, does the second half of life really exist? I need to write that guy a letter. Richard Roy, I think I'm going to write him a letter. Does it exist? I probably don't have it. 
because if the second half of life is when you, and he talks about that a little bit in his book, Falling Upward, that once you've mastered the first half of life, then you can take with you into the second half of life and being more authentically you. So he did talk about it, but uh, but he didn't talk about what does it mean to master the first half. He didn't really talk about that. Not when, not as it relates to some people entering into the world in a disadvantage, with a disadvantage. And I'm going to say without an inheritance, but I'm not just talking about material, uh, material or financial inheritance, but even to inherit the language. Like you hear me say, I was born into black English. I wasn't born into standard English. So now when I'm talking with other people who were born into standard English, I have to now work twice as hard to be able to talk on par with them. It's not natural. I'm fairly proficient at it to do that translation in my mind, in my head, so that when I'm talking, I'm on par with my counterparts. But I'm, it's, it's, it's an act of labor. So you in, even inheriting love, right? I have a, a friend of mine I'm becoming friends with. She was born in um, also intergenerational trauma. She's a white girl from a lower socioeconomic background. And I love, I love this connection with her. Like meeting her was just, just been awesome for me, especially because she's white. Because we are able to connect in these two other areas in a way that our society doesn't make room for. We don't talk about intergenerational trauma as reality. <laughs> it's a reality. People who are in intergenerational trauma, that's what you know. And I'm not even saying it like in a, con- a condescension. It's just you move about in it as that this is what all people do. I think this is why my family had they had a hard time with me when I started talking outside of the trauma. I think this is something that's going on with my niece, me and my niece. I don't really know what to do with it. But I don't know what to do with it. Anyway, um, I don't know. I don't know. What's going on? <laughs> I just got quiet and and down for a second because I'm, I'm. There's something going on with my um between my. There's like a gap. I'm experiencing a gap with my um oldest niece, and um, she and I we've talked about it. So she she acknowledged it. And that's powerful, right? Because other people in the family, when you talk about a cat, they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. So I have to celebrate the fact that she can acknowledge it. But um, but it makes me really sad. It makes me very sad. And I'm worried about it, actually. So that's what you just heard in me a second ago. When I mentioned my niece, I started like started thinking about her and got got a little sad but going back to 
Father Richard Rohr's second half, first half of life and mastering that. How do you master something in which you are, you were born into a disadvantage? I'm not saying it's impossible, but this piece that I've written under my dominant name, I haven't, I have not released it yet because I'm not 100% sure I should release it under my dominant name. It's an essay, about 3,000 words. One of the things I'm saying is that when you are, when you were born into the disadvantage with, with other people who are disadvantaged, what happens is there becomes a competition. So if, there, if there's a hierarchy and you have people who are born in the lower tier of the caste system, at the bottom of the caste, lower tier, then what those people are then going to do is build in a secondary hierarchy. So we're at the bottom of this caste system, but how we survive at the bottom of it now is based on us creating an auxiliary caste system. And there, and it's a fascinating thing to do. So it gives the illusion that the people who, who, um, who are, um, not at the bottom of the bottom. It gives the illusion that there's opportunity to move up. But that's an illusion because you don't move from the bottom tier of the caste system. You're just not at the bottom of the bottom. I don't know if you guys can make sense of that. But I've already written it out. I'm very excited about that piece, which is why I have to really think carefully. I have two blogs. Well, I have, I have about five blogs, but two primary blogs. Oh, you know what? It just occurred to me I can release that under my business name if I wanted to. Oh, I just thought about my third blog. Maybe I can release it there. Anyway, but I really want to release it because I'm very proud of this perspective, right, that I have sharing about how people survive at the bottom of the racial caste system, how they survive at the bottom. And what they start doing is they start leveraging other PowerPoints, gender, sexuality, class, beauty, religion. You know, there are these other things that we can then leverage so that we're not at the bottom of the bottom. Um, and then it gives the illusion that there's movement. I think I'm just going to close here because I feel like I don't know a way to close um, in this whole philosophical consideration. Bell Hooks talking about what does it mean to be a black woman in, you know, inside of these systems. And in all these systems, black women are at the bottom. Yeah. Um, so don't talk to me about merit, sweetie. <laughs> I'm thinking about this lady yesterday. Don't talk to me about a merit-based competition. It's not a merit-based competition. It's a legacy-based competition. And then you got to the table of the competition because of the legacies in which you are connected to.
And all of that, all of that, talking about all of that is exciting to me. And I, again, I want to write about it. And I want to teach people in it. Um, that's what I really want to do. That's what I want to do. Sorry about that. That's my alarm telling me I need to get going. <laughs> um, so that's what I want to do. And, um, got to figure out how to do that. Figure out what sacrifices I need to make in order to do that. Because this working in the system so I can then finance my way to do something outside of it. You know, it's just becoming, it's, it's an irrational plan. It's illogical. And for so, it, it's just, I don't see it anymore as logical. Irrational, I don't see it as that. I don't see it as that because it's taken so much of my mental energy to survive and be safe and successful in the system. Um, there's no room for me to do the planning outside of that. So what I think I might have to accept, and I don't know for sure, is I, I might, because I've already signed the lease for um, this to stay in my place for another year. Um, I, I'm no longer clear about buying a house. I mean, I still want to buy a house, but I know that when I do, it's going to connect me to the system, the matrix in a way. And I'm just, I'm not sure how I want to be connected. I'm going to be connected to the matrix. I just, I'm not sure how. Um, I got to figure that part out. So I'm going to give myself one more year, I think. But as I'm like, oh, I don't want to give it a year. That's a long time. A year is a long time. It's a long time. I don't want to give it a year. But anyway. Okay, you guys, <clears throat> I put you on hold again. <laughs> um, you've, I've been probably on hold for about 15 minutes. Um, just because this uh, reflection I'm taking very seriously and just allowing myself to pause. Um, and, um, and so unfortunately, it's just creating some disjointedness in terms of how you are experiencing this reflection. And for that, I do apologize, but if it means anything is uh know that I'm really really reflecting right now and I'm you know really trying to figure some things out so hopefully you will give me a little grace for that um as I try to wrap up this reflection around a philosophy I think I think when I fall into this space of looking at race gender, class, and I just, I get a little bit um, confused or not confused. And in my, you know, I went to my niece's graduation and just listen. she went to a historically black university. So just being in an environment that openly acknowledge just what it means to be black at an and then and at the academic level, it was so it was it was soul filling. 
It was soul filling and um you know I came back to the north because while I enjoyed I, I lived in the south for a while and while I loved having a different political experience by way of my blackness um I I am from the north so there's a way of my thinking that's different than in the South. That's just the natural, um, because of just how our country was settled. Um, go check out, um, um, there's a, um, um, I often call them the per- the husband and wife team. They did a, um, episode on 11 Nations. It's a book called 11 Nations. So go check out that book. But also, um, there's a podcast episode where they talk about just the different ideologies of of the settlements in the United States. And so, um, you know, I am of the the thinking of the settlement, the the, the region I'm in. Um, so I can move to another part of the country. But I have found that I am deeply rooted in some values from the region in which I was born. So. Anyway, um, all of that, all of it comes together in this complicated stew, if you will, like a complicated stew. And looking at these different philosophies, I guess would be the broth of the stew, I guess, if you're going to work with that metaphor, but... I mean, it just is, I'm unable to isolate. I'm unable to parse out and isolate the elements of the stew. Like, I have to look at the sum total and really think about the whole, the wholeness of it. And so in talking about, and, and then taking us back to the beginning of determinism, is any of this relevant? Am I just living out was already prescribed because of this idea of cause and effect? Or do I just have to consent, you know, embrace the chaos of it all? I don't know. I don't really know. But um, it has been an interesting way of thinking about my current situation just through a different lens. And so um, that's all I got for you all today. I really would love to bring this all together nice little bow but I don't have it so now I gotta get going and so um, if this reflection has had any value for you please give it a heart if the conversation around the different philosophies that um, can govern our existence can govern our reality um, and then can those, you know if any of those philosophies will help us Make sense of the world. That's great. Um, I think for me, there is no doubt. There's no doubt that I am most impact. The the philosophy that makes the most sense to me right now is the one Plato's that was written up through the allegory of the cave. That makes the most sense to me. I want to connect that to Richard Rohr's. Uh, 
falling upward in the second half of life because I think that second half of life is very much indicative of when the man was let out of the cave. Very much so. But right, I don't think Father Richard Rohr's philosophy about the second half of life really contends with what it means to occupy the first half and what you need to take into the second half with you at a structural level. I don't think he contends with that well. Um, and so then that's why I go back to the cave because that man, when he was released from the cave, had to go back in it. That's the, that's what's speaking to me the most. And then when I look at Bell Hooks's conversation and her philosophy around being a black woman at the bottom of all of these isms, you know, the black woman becomes a repository of all of these isms. Well, that speaks to me. Well, what, what am I going to do with it? <laughs> But it does speak to me. Um, and so I don't really, I just keep saying I don't know. But if those talking points help you in some way or if they've been a part of conversations that you've had in the world, please take this link and share it with those participants. This is a difficult reflection, so please make sure you qualify it or tell them to fast forward. Don't just give them a, a blank share because they're going to listen to me and go, what? What the what? <laughs> What's this lady talking about? Um, and then if my moving about in this reflection, if it's called any, caused any randomness in you, I would love to hear it. Um, you can find me on my website, as some of you are learning to do, at yournitom.wordpress.com, Twitter, yournitom1, and then Facebook and YouTube at yournitom. Let me give you your assignment. In the spirit of meaning-making as we move about through the world, we make meaning. That's just what we do. Some of us do it more than others, but that's what it means to be human, is to make sense of one's world. I always talk about having subjectivity, but it's to make meaning of one's world. How do you make meaning of your world? What's the frame What's your framework? What's the, if your life is a picture, what frame do you put around it to make meaning of it? Those of us, mm, I don't, mm, those of us who are Christian, oftentimes the Bible, but not always, mm, oftentimes the Bible, isn't that an interesting thing? Can you be Christian without using the Bible as the frame of your life? That's an interesting question. But anyway, the Bible can be used as a frame, right? That's really an interesting consideration. Um, I love theories. And so oftentimes I have many frames as it relates to me as a practitioner. But in terms of my life, critical race feminism is a, it's um. I I don't know if it's a full frame. I don't know if there's enough there. I don't know if it's enough there for it to be a frame for me. You know, in the back of the picture, when you put a picture in a frame, there's usually like a material. Sometimes it's like a little piece of cardboard that's put on the back of the picture. 
in the frame. I don't know what that is, but I, that's how I see critical race feminism for me. I don't see it as a frame, but I see it as like the backbone to me. Um, but I need to find a frame. I need to find a frame. What is your frame? How do you make meaning of the world for you and your day-to-day living in your day-to-day reality? What is your frame? That is the question I have for you. (laughs) You guys, I'm sorry my energy is low. This is a tough, I'm in a tough season. I'll be better once the school year ends. Um, We have 20-something days. And it'll be better. I'm going to be in a better space to think clearly and in a healthy space to make some really healthy decisions. So just bear with me for the next um, 20 days, okay? Because I'm going through. I'm really going through. Um, But, yeah, I'm going to get to the other side. You guys, it's been a pleasure hanging out with you until I come back. Be well. Bye.